I became what I am today at the age of 12. I remember the precise moment, crouching behind a crumbling wall, peeking into a deserted alley. Looking back, I realize I've been peeking into that alley for the last 26 years. One day last summer, my friend, Rahim Khan, called from Pakistan. Standing in the kitchen, I knew it wasn't just Rahim Khan on the line. It was my past of unatoned sins. After I hung up, I went for a walk in Golden Gate Park. I glanced up and saw a pair of kites, red with long blue tails, soaring in the sky. And suddenly, Hassan's voice whispered in my ear, For you, a thousand times over. Hassan, the hair-lipped kite runner. I sat on a bench and thought about something Rahim Khan said before he hung up. There is a way to be good again. I thought of the life I'd lived in Kabul until the winter of 1975 came along and changed everything. When we were children, Hassan and I used to climb the poplar trees in the drive of my father's house. We'd sit across from each other laughing, pelting each other with dried mulberries. I can still see Hassan, sunlight flickering on his perfectly round face, a face like a Chinese doll chiseled from hardwood, his slanting eyes like bamboo leaves, the cleft lip just left of midline. Sometimes I talked him into firing walnuts with his slingshot at the neighbor's dog. Hassan never wanted to, but if asked, really asked, he wouldn't deny me. Hassan never denied me anything, and he was deadly with his slingshot. If his father caught us, he'd get mad, or as mad as someone as gentle as Ali could get. Hassan never told on me, never said that shooting the walnuts was my idea. The poplar trees lined the drive into my father's estate. Everyone agreed that Baba had built the most beautiful house in northern Kabul. Intricate mosaics covered the floor and gold-stitched tapestries lined the walls. Upstairs was Baba's study, where he and his friends reclined on black leather chairs after Ali had served dinner. Sometimes I'd ask if I could sit with them, but Baba would say, This is grown-up time. Why don't you go and read one of those books of yours? The living room downstairs had a cabinet full of pictures an old grainy photo of my grandfather and King Nader Shah taken two years before his assassination, a picture of my parents' wedding night, and one of Baba and his business partner Rahim Khan. I'm the baby in Baba's arms, but it's Rahim Khan's little finger my hand is curled around. From the dining room, a large sliding glass door opened onto a semicircular terrace that overlooked the grounds. Baba and Ali had planted a vegetable garden along the eastern wall. Tomatoes, mint, peppers, and a row of corn that never really took. At the southern end of the garden was a modest little mud hut where Hassan lived with his father. Hassan was born in the winter of 1964, just a year after my mother died giving birth to me. In the 18 years I lived in that house, I stepped into Hassan and Ali's quarters only a handful of times. When we were done playing for the day, 
I went to Baba's mansion, Hassan, to the mud shack where he'd been born. While my mother died during childbirth, Hassan's ran off with a troop of traveling dancers. I'm told no one was really surprised. People had raised their eyebrows when Ali married a beautiful woman 19 years younger than him. Polia had left Ali with a twisted leg. In the neighborhood, the older kids chased him and called him names like Babalu or Bogeyman. They shouted, Hey, Babalu! You flat-nosed Hazara! They called him flat-nosed because of his mongoloid features. School textbooks barely mention the Hazaras, but I found a chapter on their history in one of my mother's old books. I read that my people, the Pashtuns, had driven them from their lands, burned their homes and sold their women. The book said part of the reason was that the Pashtuns were Sunni Muslims while Hazaras were Shia. The book told me a lot of things my teachers hadn't mentioned. Ali never retaliated against his tormentors. He was immune. He'd found his joy in his smiling son. After Hassan's mother left, Baba hired the same wet nurse who'd fed me. Hassan and I fed from the same breast, took our first steps on the same lawn, and under the same roof, we spoke our first words. Mine was Baba. His was Amir my name. Looking back, I think the foundation for what happened was already laid in those first words. La has it, my father once wrestled a black bear in Baluchistan with his bare hands. If the story had been about anyone else, it would have been dismissed as laugh, the Afghan tendency to exaggerate. But my father was a towering man with a thick beard and a wavered crop of curly brown hair. When I was five, he decided to build an orphanage. Rahim Khan told me Baba drew the blueprints himself and personally funded the entire project. On the day the orphanage was opened, I was so proud he was my father. When people had told Baba that running a business wasn't in his blood, he proved them all wrong by becoming one of the richest merchants in Kabul. With me as the glaring exception, my father molded the world to his liking. I always felt that Baba hated me a little. And why not? I killed his beloved wife, hadn't I? The least I could have done was to have the decency to turn out a little more like him. But I hadn't. Not at all. One night, passing Baba's study, I overheard him talking to Rahim Khan. He's always buried in those books, or shuffling around the house like he's lost in some dream. And? came Rahim Khan's voice. I wasn't like that. Rahim Khan laughed. Children aren't coloring books. You don't get to fill them in with your favorite colors. It has nothing to do with that. Then what? Sometimes I look out of this window and I see him playing on the street. I see how the other boys push him around and you know, he never fights back. He just drops his head. So he's not violent, Rahim Khan said. It's more than that. There is something missing in that boy. 
Yes, a mean streak. Self-defense has nothing to do with meanness. You know what happened when the other boys tease him? Hassan steps in and fends them off. And when they come home, I say to him, How did Hassan get that scrape on his face? And he says, He fell down. You know, if I hadn't seen the doctor pull him out of my wife with my own eyes, I'd never believe he is my son. The next morning, while he was preparing my breakfast, Hassan asked me if something was wrong. I snapped at him to mind his own business. Rahim Khan had been wrong about the mean streak. The curious thing was, I never thought of Hassan and me as friends. Never mind that to me, the face of Afghanistan is that of a boy with a Chinese doll face perpetually lit by a hair-lipped smile. Because history isn't easy to overcome, neither is religion. In the end, I was a Pashtun, and he was a Hazara. I was Sunni, and he was Shia, and nothing was ever going to change that. During the school year, we had a daily routine. By the time I dragged myself out of bed, Hassan had already prayed the morning namaz with Ali and prepared my breakfast. While I ate and complained about homework, Hassan made my bed, ironed my outfit for the day, packed my books and pencils. Then Baba and I drove off in his black Ford Mustang, and Hassan stayed at home and helped Ali with the day's chores. After school, Hassan and I usually met up, grabbed a book, and trotted up the hill just north of the house. There was an abandoned cemetery at the top with a pomegranate tree near the entrance. I carved our names on it, Amir and Hassan, the sultans of Kabul. We climbed into his branches, then I would read to Hassan. That Hassan would grow up illiterate like Ali had been decided the day he had been born. When I was in fifth grade, we had a mullah who taught us about Islam. He explained the virtues of zakat and the duty of hajj and told us the intricacies of performing the five daily namaz prayers. He told us one day that Islam considered drinking a terrible sin. In those days, drinking was fairly common in Kabul. No one gave you a public lashing for it. That evening when Baba was pouring himself a whiskey in his study, I told him what the mullah had said and asked him if the whiskey made him a sinner. He pulled me onto his knee. I'll tell you what your father thinks about sin, Amir. But first understand this. You'll never learn anything of value from those bearded idiots. Piss on the beards of all those self-righteous monkeys. They do nothing but thumb their prayer beads and recite a book written in a tongue they don't even understand. God help us if Afghanistan falls into their hands. But the mullah seems nice, I tittered. So did Gangdir's Khan. But you ask about sin. No matter what the mullah teaches, there's only one sin, and that's theft. Every other sin is a variation of theft. Do you understand? No, Baba, I said, desperately wishing I did. Baba sighed. When you kill a man, 
you steal a life. You steal his wife's right to a husband, rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. Do you see? There's no act more wretched than stealing a mare. If there's a god out there, then I hope he has more important things to attend to than my drinking scotch or eating pork. He eased me off his knee. As I watched him fill his glass, I wondered how much time would pass before we talked again the way we just had. That night, playing cards in the kitchen, Hassan and I heard a roar like thunder and the rat-a-tat of gunfire. The shooting and the explosions lasted less than an hour, but they frightened us badly. They were foreign sounds to us then. The generation of Afghan children, whose ears would know nothing but the sounds of bombs and guns, wasn't yet born. Huddled in the dining room waiting for the sun to rise, none of us had any notion that a way of life had ended. As it turned out, they hadn't shot much of anything that night in 1973. But Kabul awoke the next morning to find that the monarchy was a thing of the past. The morning after the coup, Hassan and I were on our way up our hill when a rock struck Hassan in the back. We whirled round and my heart dropped. Asif and two of his friends were approaching us. If you were a kid living in the Wazir Akbar Khan district of Kabul, you knew about Asif and his famous brass knuckles. And of all the neighborhood boys who taunted Hassan's father, Asif was the most relentless. Hey you, flat-nosed babalu, you slant-eyed donkey. Now he was walking towards us hands on his hips, a ghastly grin on his lips. Not for the first time, it occurred to me that Asif might not be entirely sane. Have you heard the news, boys? The king is gone. Long live the president. My father knows Dawood Khan. Did you know that, Amir? And I have a vision I'm going to share with our new president. Do you know what it is? I shook my head as his eyes flickered towards Hassan. Afghanistan is the land of the Pashtun. We are the true Afghan, not this flat nose here. His people pollute our homeland. He reached into the back pocket of his jeans. I'll ask the president to do what the king didn't have the quad to do. To rid Afghanistan of all the dirty Hazaras. I saw with a sinking heart what he had fished out of his pocket. The metal knuckle sparkled in the sun. Just let us go, Asif, I said, hating the way my voice trembled. We're not bothering you. Ah, oh, you're bothering me, Amir. In fact, you bother me more than this Hazara. If idiots like you and your father didn't take these people in, we'd be rid of them by now. You're a disgrace to Afghanistan. As I looked into Asif's crazy eyes, he raised his fist. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a flurry of movement. Hassan bent down and stood up quickly. Asif's eyes widened with surprise. 
I turned to see Hassan pointing his slingshot directly at Asif's face. In the cup was a stone the size of a walnut. Asif gritted his teeth. Put it down, you motherless Hazara. Hassan's hand trembled. Please leave us alone, Aha. Asif smiled. Maybe you didn't notice. There are three of us, and two of you. Hassan shifted nervously. But I am the one holding the slingshot. If you make a move, they'll have to change your nickname from Asif the Air Eater to One-Eyed Asif. Asif searched Hassan's face intently. Whatever he found must have convinced him because he lowered his fist. You should know something about me, Hazara. I'm a very patient person. Someday I'll make you face me one on one. When he'd gone, I watched Hassan trying to tuck the slingshot in his waist. His mouth was curled into something that was supposed to be a reassuring smile. But it took his trembling hands five tries to tie the string of his trousers. Early the following winter, Hassan and I were playing in the yard when Ali called us in from the snow. It was Hassan's birthday. Baba never missed it. As we walked into his study, I looked for the gift-wrapped box, but there was just Baba and Ali and an Indian fellow who looked like a maths teacher. Baba smiled at Hassan. This is Dr. Kumar. He's a plastic surgeon from New Delhi. Hassan looked from Dr. Kumar to Baba to Ali. His hand touched his upper lip. It's an unusual present, I know, Baba said. I'm probably not what you had in mind, but this present will last you forever. I wished I too had some kind of scar that would beget Baba's sympathy. It wasn't fair. Hassan hadn't done anything to earn Baba's affections. The surgery went well. We were all a little shocked when they first removed the bandages, but we kept our smiles on, just as Dr. Kumar had instructed. Baba handed Hassan a mirror, and he took a long, thoughtful look into it. Then he whispered, Dashakur, thank you. When his lips twisted, in spite of the swelling, I knew just what he was doing. He was smiling. Soon the wound healed, and there was just a pink jagged line running up from his lip. By the following winter, it was only a faint scar, which was ironic, because that was the winter that Hassan stopped smiling. Winter was every kid's favorite season in Kabul. The schools were closed and Hassan and I spent months playing cards by the stove, building snowmen and, of course, flying kites and running them. I loved winter even more because as the trees froze, the chill between Baba and me thawed a little. And the reason for that was the kites. Every district in Kabul held a kite-fighting tournament. And if you were a boy living in Kabul, the day of the tournament was the highlight of the season. Hassan and I spent hours making our own string, or ta. We'd feed up to 500 feet of it through a mixture of ground glass and glue and then wind it round a wooden spool. By the time the snow melted, every boy in Kabul bore telltale horizontal gashes on his fingers from a winter of fighting kites. 
The kite fighting tournament started early in the morning and didn't end until only the winning kite flew in the sky. The streets were filled with kite fighters, jerking and tugging on their lines, squinting up to the sky trying to gain position to cut the opponent's line. Every kite fighter had an assistant. In my case, Hassan. The rules were simple. Fly your kite, cut the opponent's, good luck. The real fun began when a kite was cut. That was where the kite runners came in. The kids who chased the windblown kite until it came spiraling down in a field or dropping on someone's rooftop. For the kite runners, the most coveted prize was the last remaining kite of a winter tournament. It was a trophy of honor, something to be displayed on a mantelpiece for guests to admire. Over the years, I'd seen a lot of guys run kites, but Hassan was by far the greatest. It was downright eerie the way he always got to the spot the kite would land before the kite did, as if he had some sort of inner compass. Once, when a crowd of runners sat off in one direction, he ran round a corner the opposite way from the way that the kite was drifting. We're losing it, I cried. Trust me, he called, his head down as he bolted along, not even looking at the sky. We ended up on a rutted dirt road. Hassan sat cross-legged at the foot of a tree eating a fistful of dried mulberries. What are we doing? I panted. Sit with me, Amir Raha. It's coming. How could you know? Would I ever lie to you, Amir? I don't know. Would you? Hassan looked in my eyes. I'd rather eat dirt. To this day, I find it hard to gaze directly at people like Hassan. People who mean everything they say. Then I looked up and saw the kite plummeting towards us. Heard shouts. Saw a melee of kite runners. But they were wasting their time. Hassan stood with his arms wide open, waiting. And may God strike me blind if the kite didn't just drop into his outstretched arms. In the winter of 1975, word had it, the tournament was going to be the biggest for 25 years. A few nights before, Baba and I were sipping tea in his study when he said casually, I think maybe you'll win this year. What do you think? I didn't know what to think. I was a good kite fighter. A few times I'd even come close to winning. But coming close was nothing. Baba hadn't come close. He'd won. He was used to winning at everything he set his mind to. However, his comment planted a seed in my head. I would win the tournament, and I was going to run that last kite and bring it home to Baba. Show him once and for all that his son was worthy. The morning of the competition, the streets glistened with fresh snow, and the sky was a blameless blue. When Hassan and I stepped through the wrought iron gates, I turned to our rooftop and saw Baba and Rahim Khan sitting on a bench sipping tea. Suddenly, I wanted to go home. Why was I putting myself through this? I'm not sure I want to fly a kite today. Hassan looked at me. But it is a beautiful day. He licked his finger, held it to test the wind and smiled. Let's fly! He lifted our kite and ran. 
The spool rolled in my hands. Hassan stopped about fifty feet away and held the kite high over his head. I jerked the string twice, our sign, and Hassan tossed the kite. Within a minute, it was rocketing to the sky. At least two dozen kites were already swooping like paper sharks roaming for prey. Within an hour, the number doubled. Soon the cutting started, and the first of the defeated kites whirled out of control. They fell from the sky like shooting stars with brilliant rippling tails. I kept stealing glances at Baba on the roof. They were coming down all over the place now, and I was still flying. A red kite was closing in on me. I tangled with it and triumphed when he became impatient and tried to cut me from below. Within another hour, the number of surviving kites dwindled to a dozen. My legs ached, my neck was stiff, but with each defeated kite, hope grew in my heart. But my eyes kept returning to a blue kite that had been wreaking havoc. How many he cut? I asked Hassan. I count eleven. I didn't dare look at the roof. I had to concentrate. The tension was as taut as the glass string. People were stomping their feet, calling, "Cut him! Cut him!" All I heard was the blood thudding in my head. All I saw was the blue kite. And suddenly, I knew I was going to win. A gust of wind lifted my kite, and I took advantage, looped my kite on top of the blue one, and held position. The blue kite tried to maneuver out of trouble, but I didn't let go. You're almost there, Hassan panted. Then the moment came. I closed my eyes and loosened my grip on the string. It sliced my finger as the wind dragged, and then I didn't need to hear the crowd roar to know. Hassan was screaming, and his arms were wrapped around my neck. Bravo, bravo! I opened my eyes, saw the blue kite spinning wildly. Hassan looked up at me, and we smiled at each other. Then I was screaming, and everything was alive and good. I threw my free arm around Hassan, and we hopped up and down, both of us laughing, both of us weeping. You won, Amira. We won, was all I could say. I saw Baba on our roof pumping both of his fists, and that, right there, was the single greatest moment of my twelve years of life. Seeing Baba proud of me at last, but then he was motioning with his hands. Hassan looked at me. We celebrate later. Right now, I'm going to run that blue kite for you. He had already reached the street corner when he stopped and turned, cupping his hands round his mouth. For you, a thousand times over. Picked my way through the dwindling crowd in the bazaar, but there was no sign of Hassan. I described him to an old merchant. He eyed me up and down. What's a boy like you doing looking for Hazara? I controlled my impatience. He's our servant's son. The man rested an arm on his mule's back and pointed south. I think I saw him running that way. He had a blue kite in his hand. For you, a thousand times over, he'd promised.
Good old Hassan. He'd run the last kite for me. Of course, they probably caught him by now. Who? The other boys who were chasing him. For the next few minutes, I poked my head behind every stall. I'd reached a secluded muddy road when I heard voices up ahead coming from one of the alleys. I crept closer and peeked round the corner. Hassan was standing defiantly at the end, fist curled, legs slightly apart. Behind him, on a pile of rubble, was the blue kite. My key to Baba's heart. Blocking Hassan's way were three boys, the same three that had threatened us the day Hassan had saved us with his slingshot. Asif was twirling his familiar brass knuckles. The other two shifted nervously on their feet. Where's your slingshot, Hazara? Asif sneered. I exhaled slowly, quietly. I felt paralyzed. I watched them close in on the boy I'd grown up with, the boy whose hair-lit face had been my first memory. But today's your lucky day, Hazara, Asif said. I'm in the mood to forgive. What do you say to that, boys? That's generous, one of them blurted. He was trying to sound like Asif, except there was a tremor in his voice. Then I understood. He wasn't afraid of Hassan, he was afraid because he had no idea what Asif had in mind. Asif waved his hand. Of course, nothing is free in this world, and my pardon comes with a small price. It's going to cost you that blue kite. Even from where I was standing, I could see the fear in Hassan's eyes. But he shook his head. Amir won the tournament fair and square, and I ran this kite for him. This is his kite. <laughs> a loyal Hazara, loyal as a dog, Asif sneered. But before you sacrifice yourself for him, think. Would he do the same for you? Have you ever wondered why he never includes you in games when he has guests? I tell you why, Hazara. Because to him, you're nothing but an ugly pet. Something to play with when he is bored or kick when he is angry. Don't ever fool yourself you're something more. Amir Aha and I are friends, Hassan said. Asif laughed. <laughs> you pathetic fool. Now, just give us that kite. Hassan stooped and picked up a rock. Whatever you wish. Hasif unbuttoned his coat. I opened my mouth, almost said something. Almost. The rest of my life might have turned out differently, if I had. But I didn't. I just watched. Asif motioned to the other two. I've changed my mind. I'd let you keep the kite. So it will always remind you of what I'm about to do. Then he charged, knocking Hassan to the ground. The other two followed. I closed my eyes. But when I opened them again, there were two things I couldn't stop looking at. One was the blue kite. The other was Hassan's pants, thrown on a heap of eroded bricks. All I want you weaklings to do is to hold him down. Asif unzipped his jeans. 
Hassan didn't struggle, didn't even whimper. He moved his head slightly, and I caught a glimpse of his face, saw the resignation in it. It was the look of the lamb. I stopped watching, turned away from the alley. I realized I was weeping. I had one final opportunity to decide who I was going to be. I could step into that alley, stand up for Hassan the way he'd stood up for me, or I could run. In the end, I ran. Back in the bazaar, I hid behind a stall. Fifteen minutes later, I heard voices and watched Asif and the other two sprinting by laughing. I forced myself to wait ten more minutes. Then I walked back towards the alley. Hassan was walking slowly towards me. He had the blue kite in his hands. That was the first thing I saw. His shirt was ripped. He was swaying on his feet as if he was going to collapse. Then he steadied himself, handed me the kite. Where were you? I said. I I've been looking for you. He dragged his sleeve across his face. I waited for him to say something, but we just stood there in silence. I was grateful for the early evening shadows that fell on his face and concealed mine. I was glad I didn't have to return his gaze. Did he know I knew? And if he knew, then what would I see if I did look in his eyes? Blame? Indignation? Or what I feared most, guileless devotion. It happened just the way I'd imagined. I opened the door to the study. Baba and Rahim Khan turned their heads and a smile played on my father's lips. I put the kite down, walked into his open arms, buried my face in the warmth of his chest and wept. Baba held me close, rocking me back and forth. In his arms, I forgot what I had done. And that was good. For a week, I barely saw Hassan. I woke to find breakfast already on the kitchen table, my clothes ironed. Hassan used to wait for me before he started ironing so we could talk. Now, only the folded clothes greeted me. And a breakfast I hardly ate. Lately, all he seemed to want to do is sleep, said Ali. After the kite tournament, he come home a little bloody. Did something happen to him, Amir? I shrugged. How should I know? Maybe he's sick. Baba and I were finally friends. We'd gone to the zoo and then the kebab house and Baba had told me stories of his travels to India and Russia. That should have been fun. I finally had what I wanted all those years. Except now that I had it, I felt empty. That night in my room, a wedge of moonlight streamed in through the window. I watched Hassan get ripped, I said aloud. A part of me was hoping someone would hear, so I wouldn't have to live with this lie anymore. But in the silence that followed, I understood the nature of my new curse. I was going to get away with it. My memory of the rest of the winter is pretty hazy. 
I was fairly happy when Baba was home. But when he was out, I closed myself in my room and I read. To my dismay, Hassan kept trying to rekindle things between us. One day he knocked on my door. What is it? I'm going to the baker, he said from the other side. I wondered if you want to come along. I think I'll just read, I said, rubbing my temples. Lately, every time Hassan was around, I was getting a headache. It's a sunny day. I can see that. Might be fun to go for a walk. You go. Something thumped against the door, maybe his forehead. I don't know what I have done, Amir Haha. I wish you'd tell me. You haven't done anything, Hassan. Just go. You can tell me. I stopped doing it. I snapped. I want you to stop harassing me. I want you to go away. I wished he'd break the door open and tell me off. It would have made things easier, but he didn't. When I opened the door a minute later, he wasn't there. I fell on my bed, buried my head under the pillow and cried. Hassan milled about the periphery of my life after that. But even when he wasn't around, he was. He was there in the warm slippers left outside my door, in the wood already burning in the stove when I came down for breakfast. Everywhere I turned, I saw signs of his loyalty, his goddamn unwavering loyalty. Early in the spring, a few days before the new school year started, Baba and I were planting tulips in the garden when I came right out and said it. Baba, have you ever thought about getting new servants? He buried his trowel in the dirt. What did you say? I was just wondering, that's all. Why would I ever want to do that? It was just a question. I was already sorry I'd spoken. Is this about you and Hassan? I know there is something going on between you, but whatever it is, you have to deal with it. He picked up his trowel. I grew up with Ali. My father took him in. He loved Ali like his own son. Forty years Ali's been with my family and you think I'm just going to throw him out? He shook his head. You bring me shame, Amir. Hassan's not going anywhere, do you understand? I picked up a fistful of soil and let it pour between my fingers. I said, do you understand? Hassan stays right here with us, where he belongs. This is his home and we're his family. Don't you ever ask me that question again. One sluggish, hazy afternoon early that summer, I asked Hassan to go up the hill with me. Told him I wanted to read him a new story I'd written. He was hanging clothes to dry and I saw his eagerness in the hurried way he finished the job. We climbed the hill, making small talk, and at the top we sat under the shade of our pomegranate tree. I put the story on the ground, then picked up an overripe pomegranate and stood up. What would you do if I hit you with this? Hassan's smile wilted. Next to him, the pages of the story I'd promised to read fluttered in the breeze. I hurled a pomegranate at him. It struck him in the chest, exploding in a spray of red pulp. Hassan's cry was pregnant with surprise and pain. Hit me back! I snapped. Hassan looked from the stain on his chest to me. Get up! Hit me! Hassan did get up, but he just stood there, 
looking dazed. I hit him with another pomegranate, on the shoulder this time. Hit me back! I wanted him to give me the punishment I craved, so maybe I'd finally sleep at night. Maybe then things could return to how they used to be between us, but Hassan did nothing as I pelted him again and again. I don't know how many times I hit him. All I know is that when I finally stopped, exhausted and panting, Hassan did pick up a pomegranate. He walked towards me, opened it, and crushed it on his own forehead. There, he croaked. Are you satisfied? Then he turned and started down the hill. Baba threw an enormous party for my 13th birthday. Sitting in my room the next morning, I ripped open box after box of presents and several envelopes containing cash. I didn't want any of it. It was all blood money. Baba would have never thrown me a party if I hadn't won the kite tournament. Baba gave me two presents, a bicycle and a wristwatch. I didn't even try the watch on. When I went downstairs, Ali appeared. The opportunity never presented itself last night for Hassan and me to give you this. We hope you like it. Happy birthday. Thank you, Ali. I opened the parcel and found a brand new hardback copy of the Shahnama, the book Hassan most loved me to read him. Hassan said your copy was old and ragged, that pictures are hand-drawn in this one. It's beautiful. I said, and it was, and I suspected, not inexpensive either. I wanted to tell Ali it wasn't the book, but I who was unworthy. Thank Hassan for me, I said. I ended up tossing the book on the pile of gifts, but my eyes kept going back to it. Before I went to bed that night, I asked Baba if he'd seen my new watch anywhere. The next morning, I waited in my room until Ali and Hassan had gone to the bazaar. Then I took a couple of envelopes of cash and my watch, and I tiptoed out. I crossed the yard and entered Ali and Hassan's hut. I lifted Hassan's mattress and planted my new watch and a handful of banknotes under it. Then I knocked on Baba's door and told him what I hoped would be the last in a long line of shameful lies. They'd both been crying. I could tell from their eyes. They stood before Baba, hand in hand, and I wondered how and when I'd become capable of causing this kind of pain. Baba came right out and asked, Did you steal that money? Did you steal Amir's watch, Hassan? Hassan's reply was a single word. Yes. I flinched as if I had been slapped. I almost blurted out the truth. Then I understood. This was Hassan's final sacrifice for me. If he had said no, Baba would have believed him because we all knew Hassan never lied. And if Baba believed him, then I would be revealed for what I really was. Baba would never forgive me. And that led to another understanding. 
Hassan knew I'd seen everything in that alley. That I'd stood there and done nothing. He knew I'd betrayed him, and yet he was rescuing me once again. I loved him in that moment. Loved him more than I'd ever loved anyone. And I wanted to tell them all that I was a snake in the grass. I wasn't worthy of this sacrifice. And I would have told, except that a part of me was glad. Glad that this would all be over soon. Baba would dismiss them and life would move on. I wanted to start with a clean slate. I wanted to be able to breathe again. Except that Baba stunned me by saying, I forgive you. Hadn't he set me on his lap and said that theft was the one unforgivable sin? How could he just forgive Hassan? And if Baba could forgive Hassan, then why couldn't he forgive me for not being the son he always wanted? We're leaving, Aha Saib, Ali said. We can't live here anymore. As the color drained from Baba's face, Ali curled his arm round his son's shoulder. It was a protective gesture, and when he glanced my way, his cold look showed me who he was protecting Hassan from. I realized Hassan had told him everything, about Asif and his friends, about the kite, about me. Strangely, I was glad that someone knew me for who I really was. I was tired of pretending. I don't care about the money or the watch, Baba said. I don't understand why you're doing this. Haven't I always provided well for you? I'm sorry, Ahasab, but our bags are already packed. Then I saw Baba do something I'd never seen him do before. He cried. Please. I'll never forget the pain in Baba's plea. Slithering beads of rain sluiced down my bedroom window as I watched Ali haul the lone suitcase carrying all of their belongings to Baba's car. I saw Baba slam the boot shut and walk to the driver's side. He leaned in and said something to Ali in the back. When he straightened, I saw in his slumping shoulders that the life I'd known was over. Baba slid in. The headlights came on and cut twin funnels of light in the rain. I watched Baba's car pull away, taking with it the person whose first spoken word had been my name. I stepped back, and all I saw was rain through window panes that looked like melting silver. There were about a dozen of us, sitting in the back of a tarpaulin-covered Russian truck, our suitcases between our legs. The driver was a people smuggler. It was a pretty lucrative business driving people out of Shurawi occupied Kabul. He was taking us to Jalalabad, where his brother was waiting with another group of refugees to drive us across the Khyber Pass to Pakistan. I thought of the way we'd left the house, as if we were just going out for a walk. Dishes smeared with kofte, piled in the kitchen sink, Baba's suit still hanging in the wardrobes. A few items of clothing were missing from the cupboards, as was the leather-bound notebook Rahim Khan had given me to write my stories in. We hadn't told Jaludin, our seventh servant in five years. You couldn't trust anyone in Kabul anymore. 
We rolled into Jalalabad about an hour before sunrise. Then the driver informed us that for the next leg of the journey, we'd be hidden inside a fuel tank. Panic. You open your mouth so wide, your jaws creak. You order your lungs to draw air. Now! The air was so thick, it was almost solid. I wanted to break it into pieces and cram it down my throat. And the stench of the gasoline! My eyes stung from the fumes. You could die in a place like this, I thought. And then a small miracle. Baba tucked at my sleeve, and something glowed green in the pitch black. Baba's wristwatch. I kept my eyes glued to the fluorescent green hands as the truck bounced from side to side and heads banged against metal. Think of something good, Baba said in my ear. I let my mind wander. Hassan and I stand, ankle deep in grass. Our eyes turned up to the kite in the sky. I'm tugging on the line. Hassan lets the spool roll. The kite spins, dips, steadies. Our twin shadows dance on the rippling grass. The rest of the journey is a haze, until the blinding light of the early morning as I climbed out of the fuel tank. We're in Pakistan, Amir, Baba said. My eyes turned to our suitcases. They made me sad. After everything Baba had dreamed, planned, fought for, this was a summation of his life. One disappointing son and two suitcases. Baba loved the idea of America. It was living in America that gave him an ulcer. I remember the two of us walking through the park a few streets from our apartment. Baba enlightened me with his politics. He loathed Jimmy Carter, whom he called Big Tooth Cretin. In 1980, when the U.S. announced it would boycott the Olympic Games in Moscow, he exclaimed, Brezhnev is massacring Afghans, and all that peanut eater can say is, I won't come swim in your pool. What America needed, he said, was a man to be reckoned with, and that someone came in the form of Ronald Reagan. Most of our neighbors in Fremont were bus drivers, gas station attendants, and unwed mothers collecting welfare. Baba was the lone Republican. The Bay Area smog stung his eyes, and the traffic noise gave him headaches. The fruit was never sweet enough, the water never clean enough. He missed the sugarcane fields, missed people milling in and out of his house, missed walking down the bustling aisles of the bazaar and greeting people who knew him and his father. Knew his grandfather. For me, America was a place to bury my memories. For Baba, a place to mourn his. Maybe we should go back to Peshawar, I said. We'd spent six months there waiting for our visas. You were happier there, Baba. Peshawar was good for me. Not good for you. I reached across the table and put my hand on his. My student hand, clean and soft, on his laborer's hand, grubby and calloused. I thought of the train sets and bikes he'd bought me in Kabul. Now America, one last gift for Amir.
Just one month after we arrived, Baba found a job as an assistant at a gas station. He was determined not to live on welfare. Six days a week, he pulled twelve-hour shifts, pumping gas, changing oil, and washing windshields. In the summer of 1983, I graduated from high school. At 20, I was by far the oldest senior, tossing his motorboat on the football field. I remember losing Baba in the crowd. He was wearing his only suit, the same brown suit he wore to Afghan weddings and funerals, and the red tie I'd bought for his fiftieth birthday that year. When I found him, he motioned for me to wear my motorboat and took a picture. I smiled for him. In a way, this was his day more than mine. He curled his arm round my neck and gave my forehead a single kiss. I am Muftakir Amir," he said. "Proud. I liked being on the receiving end of that look. We went to a kebab house and then a bar across the street. He treated everyone to drinks. Baba always knew how to start a party. When we left, everyone was sad to see him go. Kabul, Peshawar, California, same old Baba. I thought. Smiling, I drove home in his old Buick. Keep driving to the end of the block, he commanded. He had me park at the south end of the street and handed me a set of keys. There, he pointed to the car in front of us. It needs painting, and I'll have one of those guys at the garage put in new shocks. But it runs. I took the keys, stunned. You'll need it to go to college," he said. My eyes filled with tears. Thank you, Baba. He smiled and leaned back against the headrest. I wish Hassan had been with us today. A pair of steel hands closed around my windpipe. I rolled down the window, waited for the steel hands. To loosen their grip. The summer I turned twenty-one, Baba sold his car and bought a dilapidated Volkswagen bus. On Saturday, he'd wake me at dawn. We'd scan the classifieds in the local paper and circle the garage sales. We bought knickknacks that people no longer wanted. Then early Sunday morning, we drove to San Jose Flea Market and sold the junk for a small profit. By that summer, Afghan families were working an entire section of the market. There was an unspoken code of behavior. You greeted the guy across the aisle. You invited him for a bite of potato bolani and you chatted. Tea, politics, and scandal—the ingredients of an Afghan Sunday at the flea market. Baba sauntered down the aisle, greeting people he knew from Kabul. One Sunday morning, he came back to our store with a distinguished-looking man. He introduced as General Tahiri. Why did that name sound familiar? The general put his hand on Baba's shoulder. Your father and I hunted pheasants together one summer in Jalalabad. If I recall correctly, your father's eye proved as keen in the hunt as it had in business.
Baba kicked a wooden tennis racket on our tarpaulin spread. Some business. The general patted his shoulder. Life goes on. Padarjan, you forgot your tea. A young woman's voice. She was standing behind us. A slim hip beauty with velvety coal black hair. An open thermos in her hand. The general took the tea. You're so kind, my dear. Before she turned to go, I saw a brown sickle-shaped birthmark on the smooth skin, just above her left jawline. She walked to a dull grey van two aisles away. My daughter Soraya. General Tahiri took a deep breath like a man eager to change the subject and checked his gold pocket watch. Well, time to go and set up. For the rest of that day, I fought the urge to look towards the grey van. It came to me on our way home. Tahiri. Wasn't there some story floating around about Tahiri's daughter? I asked casually. You know me, Baba said. Talk turns to gossip and I walk away. He looked at me coyly. Why do you ask? I shrugged. All I've heard is there was a man once. And things uh, didn't go well. He said this gravely, as if he disclosed she had breast cancer. Oh, I hear she's a decent girl, hardworking and kind. But no suitors have knocked on the general's door since. It may be unfair, but it's what happens. Laying awake in bed that night, I thought of Soraya Tahiri's sickle-shaped birthmark and the way her luminous eyes had fleetingly held mine. On Sunday, I invented an excuse to stroll past the Tahiri stand, which Baba acknowledged with a playful smirk. Sometimes Soraya sat alone, the general off to some other row to socialize. I promised myself I'd talk to her before the summer was over. Then one sweltering Sunday, I spotted the Tahiri van next to a kiosk selling mangoes on a stick. She was alone, reading. Salam. I didn't mean to disturb you. Is General Saib here today? She pointed to her right. Her bracelet slipped down to her elbow, silver against olive. Will you tell him I stopped by to pay my respects? My name is Amir. I began to leave stopped and turned. I said it before I had a chance to lose my nerve. Can I ask you what you're reading? I felt the collective eyes of the flea market shift to us. This was teetering dangerously on the verge of gossip material. By Afghan standards, my question had been bold. Would she take my dare? She turned the book so the cover faced me. Wuthering Heights, have you read it? I nodded. Sad stories make good books, she said. As we started chatting, her eyes flicked from side to side, checking for the general, I suppose. I was about to take my leave when her mother came up the aisle with a bag of fruit. When she saw us, her eyes bounced from Soraya to me and back. She smiled. Amir Jan, my husband has told me all about you. It's good to see you. How is your father? 
He's well, thank you. You know your grandfather, the judge? Now his uncle and my grandfather were cousins. So you see we're related. She smiled again. If I was going to have an adversary, it wouldn't be her. For a few weeks after that, I'd wait until the general went for a stroll, then walked past the Tahiri stand. If Soraya's mother was there, she'd offer me tea. I liked it when she was there. Soraya was more relaxed, more talkative, as if her mother's presence legitimized whatever was happening between us. That summer, Baba caught a cold. It started with a hacking cough and sniffles. He got over the sniffles, but the cough persisted. Two weeks later, I caught him coughing blood-stained phlegm into the toilet. I took him to the doctor, who referred him to the pulmonary clinic. He's got a spot on his lung, the young doctor said. Cancer, Baba asked casually. Possible. It's suspicious, anyway. The specialist was a softly spoken Iranian. He told us he'd have to perform a bronchoscopy to get a piece of the lung mass for pathology. As I helped Baba out of the office, I turned over the new word in my mind. Mass seemed even more ominous than suspicious. It turned out that, like Satan, cancer had many names. Baba's was called oat cell carcinoma, inoperable. He refused any palliative treatment. When we got home, I said, I wish you'd give the chemotherapy a chance. I've made my decision, he growled. And one more thing. No one finds out about this, you hear me? I don't want anybody's sympathy. For a while, even cancer couldn't keep Baba from the flea market. Then one cool Sunday, he was selling a lampshade, whilst I was rummaging in the van for a blanket to cover his legs, when his customer yelled, Hey man, this guy needs help. I turned round, and I found Baba on the ground his arms and legs jerking. A crowd gathered. I heard the word seizure, a voice calling 911. At the hospital, the doctor took me out of the room. The cancers metastasized. He'll have to take steroids to reduce the swelling in his brain. And I'd recommend palliative radiation. Do you know what that means? I did. I'd become conversant in cancer talk. I spent the night sitting on a chair next to Baba's bed. The next morning, the waiting room was jammed with Afghans. They filed in and paid Baba their respects in hushed tones. Mid-morning, General Tahiri and his wife came. Saraya followed. We glanced at each other, looked away at the same time. The general took Baba's hand. How are you, my friend? Baba motioned to the IV hanging from his arm, smiled thinly. The general smiled back. Do you need anything? Anything at all? Ask me like you'd ask a brother. As Baba shook his head, I remember something he'd once said about Pashtuns. We may be hard-headed, and I know we're far too proud. But in the hour of need, believe me, there is no one you rather have at your side. The general turned to me. How are you, Amir Jan? 
The kindness in his eyes caused a lump in my throat. I bolted from the room, and my eyes filled with tears. Soraya followed. I'm so sorry, Amir. We all knew something was wrong, but we had no idea it was this. I blotted my eyes with my sleeve. He didn't want anyone to know. She put a hand on mine. Our first touch. They discharged Baba two days later. That night he lay on the couch under a wool blanket. I brought him hot tea and roasted almonds, wrapped my arms around his back, and pulled him up much too easily. Can I do anything else for you, Baba? Nay, thank you. I sat beside him. Then I wonder if you'll do something for me, if you're not too exhausted. What? I want you to ask General Tahiri for his daughter's hand. Baba's dry lips stretched into a smile. Are you sure? More sure than I've ever been about anything. The next morning, I stopped outside the Tahiri's flat. As I drove away, Baba was in the rearview mirror, hobbling up the drive for one last fatherly duty. As instructed, I went home and waited. The phone rang just before noon. The general accepted. I sat down, my hands shaking. He did. Yes, but Saraya wants to talk to you first. There was a click, and then Saraya's voice. Amir, I was smiling. I'm so happy. I don't know what to say. I'm happy too, but listen. There's something you need to know. I don't want us to start with secrets, and I'd rather you hear it from me. If it'll make you feel better, but it won't change anything. There was a pause at the other end. When we lived in Virginia, I ran away with an Afghan man. I was eighteen, rebellious, stupid, and he was into drugs. We lived together for almost a month. My father eventually found us and made me come home. I was hysterical. I said I hated him. When I got back, I saw my mother had had a stroke. The right side of her face was paralyzed. I felt so guilty. She didn't deserve that. My father moved us to California shortly after. There was a silence. How are you and your father now? We've always had our differences, but I am grateful he came for me. I really believe he saved me. Does what I told you bother you? A little. I owed her the truth, but I pondered this a lot in the weeks before I asked Baba to go to her parents. And in the end, the question that always came back to me was this: How could I, of all people, chastise someone for their past? Does it bother you enough to change your mind? No, Saraya, not even close. She broke into tears. I envied her. Her secret was out, dealt with. I opened my mouth and almost told her how I betrayed Hassan, driven him out, destroyed a forty-year relationship between Baba and Ali. But I didn't. I suspected there were many ways in which Saraya Tahiri was a better person than me. 
Courage was just one of them. Saraya and I had been married for 15 years when the call came from Pakistan. Rahim Khan was ill. He wanted me to go and see him. I drove to Golden Gate Park where dozens of miniature boats sailed. I glanced up and saw a pair of kites floating high above the trees. I thought about the comment Rahim Khan had made before hanging up. Come, there is a way to be good again. My suspicions had been right all those years. He knew about Asif, the kite, the wristwatch. He'd always known. As the taxi passed Peshawar University, we entered an area the driver referred to as Afghan town. I saw sweet shops, carpet sellers, and tiny restaurants with maps of Afghanistan painted on their windows, interlaced with backstreet aid agencies. I thought about the last time I saw Rahim Khan. He'd come to say goodbye the night Baba and I fled from Kabul. I remember them embracing, crying softly. When we arrived in America, they kept in touch by phone. The last time I'd spoken to Rahim Khan was shortly after Baba's death. The driver pulled up by a narrow building. I walked up to the second floor and down a dim hallway. A thing made of skin and bones pretending to be Rahim Khan opened the apartment door. We sat on a wispy mattress and I poured tea from a small cup of samovar. The conversation inevitably turned to the Taliban. Is it as bad as I hear? Worse. They don't let you be human. Rahim Khan had moved into Baba's house when we left. Later, when the Northern Alliance took over, different factions claimed different parts of Kabul. You practically needed a visa to go from one neighborhood to the other. So we just stayed put. People prayed the next rocket wouldn't hit their house. When the Taliban rolled in and kicked the alliance out, I actually danced on the street. Hope's a strange thing. A violent coughing fit gripped Rahim Khan and rocked his gaunt body. How are you? I asked. Dying, actually. He blotted his brow from one wasted temple to the other. I knew he read the next question on my face. Not long. Let me take you home with me. I can find a good doctor. They're coming up with new treatments all the time. I was rambling and I knew it. But it was better than crying. Rahim Khan chuckled. <laughs> I see America has infused you with the optimism that made her so great. I'm being pragmatic. I've seen several good doctors and they're all given the same answer. There is such a thing as God's will. There was another reason I asked you to come. You know all those years I lived in your father's house? I wasn't alone. Hassan lived there with me. Hassan, the thorny old barbs of guilt bore into me. I thought of writing and telling you, but I wasn't sure you wanted to know. Was I wrong? I don't know. 
I'm going to ask something of you. But before I do, I want to tell you about Hassan. I didn't want to let your father's house go to rot, Amir Jan. It had meant so much to him. So one day, I drove to the village where Ali and Hassan moved, after Ali dismissed himself from the house. I found Hassan living in the only house in the village that had a walled garden. I had to make him stop kissing my hands when he saw me. He had grown so tall, but other than that, he had those same green eyes, that scar on his lip, <laughs> that smile. You would have recognized him, Amir. I'm sure of it. We went inside and met his wife, Farzana. Hassan told me that Ali and his cousin had been killed by a landmine two years before. A landmine? Is there a more Afghan way of dying? Farzana made us a meal and I told Hassan about the house and how I couldn't care for it by myself anymore. I asked him to move to Kabul with me at first, he wanted to stay. He and Farzana had made a life for themselves in the village. He asked about you, and I told him you were in America. He wanted to know, had you married? Did you have children? Did you still fly kites? Were you happy? He learned to write, and he asked if he wrote you a letter. Would I pass it on to you? He wept like a child when he heard about your father. He and Farzana insisted that I spend the night there. All night I could hear them whispering and Hassan sobbing. And in the morning he told me that he decided to move to Kabul with me. When I asked if he was sure, he said, Ohosa was like my second father. When we got back to Kabul, Hassan refused to move into the house. He said it was a matter of respect. He and Farzana moved into the hut in the backyard. I pleaded with them to use the guest bedroom, but he wouldn't. They did all the cooking, all the cleaning. Hassan tended the flowers in the garden, painted the walls. It was as if he was preparing the house for someone's return. In the winter of 1990, they had a son, and they called him Sorab, after Hassan's favorite hero from the Shanama. Do you remember you used to read it to him? He was a beautiful little boy, with the same sweet temperament as his father. Hassan taught Sorab how to shoot the slingshot, and by the time he was eight, he was deadly with the thing. He also taught him to read and write. His son wasn't going to grow up illiterate like he had. I grew very attached to that little boy. He reminded me of you. You remember I told you? How you all celebrated when the Taliban rolled in? Well, that night when I got home, I found Hassan in the kitchen listening to the radio. God help the Hazaras now, Rahim Khan, he said. But the war is over, I said. There's going to be peace. A few weeks later, the Taliban banned kite fighting. Two years later, they massacred the Hazaras in Mazia Sharif. Rahim Khan fished an envelope from his jacket and handed it to me. Inside was a photograph and a folded letter. A tall man wearing a white turban stood with a little boy in front of a set of wrought iron gates. He exuded a sense of self-assuredness. His arms comfortably crossed on his chest, 
his smiling face tilted towards the sun. Rahim Khan was right. I'd have known him anywhere. The little boy stood barefoot, his head resting against his father's hip. He too was grinning. I unfolded the letter. In the name of Allah, the most beneficent, the most merciful, Amir Aha, with my deepest respects, Farzana Jan, Sohrab, and I pray that this letter finds you in good health. I have told much about you to Farzana and Sohrab, about us growing up together. They laugh at the stories of the mischief we used to cause. Alas, the Afghanistan of our youth is long dead. In Kabul, fear is everywhere, and you cannot escape the killing. I wish you could see Sohrab. He's a good boy. The two of us often walk up to the cemetery on the hill. We sit under the shade of our pomegranate tree, and I read him the Shanama. I have been dreaming a lot lately, Amir. I dream that my son will grow up to be a free person, and that flowers will bloom in the streets of Kabul again, and kites will fly in the sky. And I dream that some day you will return to the land of our childhood. If you do, you'll find a faithful friend waiting for you. May Allah be with you always, Hassan. Rahim Khan said, "That letter was written six months ago, before I came to Peshawar." A month after I arrived, I got a call. Soon after I'd left Kabul, a rumor spread that a Hazara family was living alone in the big house. A pair of Talib officials came to investigate and interrogate Hassan. When he explained he was looking after the house for me, they accused him of lying, and ordered him out. Hassan protested, so they took him out on the street. They made him kneel. They shot him in the back of the head. When Farzana screamed, they shot her too. What did they do with Sohrab? I asked. I heard he's in an orphanage. Rahim Khan paused. I already knew what he was going to say. I want you to bring Sohrab here. I know an American couple, Thomas and Betty Codwell. They run a small charity to help house and feed Afghan children who'd lost their parents. They're good people. They've already told me Sohrab would be welcome. Rahim Khan, I can't go to Kabul. It's too dangerous. I have a wife in America, a home. Sohrab is a gifted little boy. We can give him a new life here, new hope. Why me? I think we both know why it has to be you, don't we? I dropped my eyes. Rahim Khan leant back against the wall. There is something else you should know. Before Ali married Hassan's mother, he was married to a Hazara woman who left him childless after three years. Ali was sterile. He had Hassan. No, he didn't. Then who? I think you know who. I felt like a man sliding down a steep cliff. Did Hassan know? Rahim Khan shook his head. You bastards! How could you hide this from me? Suddenly, it all made sense. 
The signs had been there all along. Baba hiring Dr. Kumar to fix Hassan's hair lip. Never missing Hassan's birthday. And the day I'd asked if he'd consider getting new servants. Hassan stays right here with us, he'd said. This is his home and we're his family. Then I saw Baba on the day of my graduation. I wish Hassan had been with us today. How could he have lied to me all those years? To Hassan? When I was little, hadn't he sat me on his lap and said, There is only one sin, and that's theft. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. And now, fifteen years after I'd buried him, I was learning that Baba had been a thief of the worst kind, because the things he'd stolen had been sacred. From me, the right to know I had a brother. From Hassan, his identity. And from Ali, his honor. Then it occurred to me that Baba and I were more alike than I'd realized. We'd both betrayed the people who would have given their lives for us. And with that came the realization that Rahim Khan had summoned me here to atone not just for my sins, but for Baba's too. There is a way to be good again, he said. A way to end the cycle. With a little boy. An orphan. Hassan's son. Somewhere in Kabul. drive through the tribal lands of the Khyber Pass was just as I remembered it when Baba and I had driven through back in 1974. The driver was a sullen man called Farid. Rahim Khan had warned me not to expect a warm welcome from those who stayed in Afghanistan and fought the wars. Farid was dressed much as I was, a rough woven woolen blanket wrapped over a grey piran tumban. I was also wearing a false beard provided by a man Rahim Khan knew who specialized in weaving them for journalists. Rahim Khan had wanted me to stay in Pashwa to plan more thoroughly, but I knew I had to leave as soon as possible. I was afraid the appeal of my life in America would draw me back, that I'd let it tempt me away from this one last chance of redemption. As for Soraya, telling her I was going back to Afghanistan just wasn't an option. We'd crossed the border, and the signs of poverty were everywhere. I feel like a tourist in my own country, I said. You still think of this place as your country? scoffed Farid. After twenty years of living in America? I think a part of me always will. I grew up here. He snorted. Let me imagine, Aha Saab. You probably live in a big three-story house with a nice backyard that your gardener filled with flowers and fruit trees. All gated, of course. You had servants, probably Hazaras. And I bet my first son's eyes, this is the first time you've worn a pakol. He pointed to an old man dressed in rags. That's the real Afghanistan, Oha Saib. You've always been a tourist here. You just didn't know it. What brings you back to Afghanistan anyway? 
selling land, selling a house, before you run back to America and spend the money on family vacation in Mexico? I'm going to Kabul to find a boy. I fished the photo of Sorab and Hassan out of my pocket. What does this Hazara mean to you? His father meant a lot to me. He's dead now. Farid blinked. He was a friend of yours? My instinct was to say yes, but there'd been enough lies already. He was my half-brother, my illegitimate half-brother. I want to take his son back to Peshwa. There are people there who take care of him. Farid rested his hand on my shoulder. You are an honorable man, Amir Aha, a true Afghan. I cringed inside. As we neared the city, he said, Kabul isn't the way you remember it. So I hear. He gave me a look that said hearing isn't the same as seeing, and he was right. Because when Kabul finally did unroll before us, I was certain, absolutely certain, that he'd taken a wrong turning somewhere. Rubble and beggars, everywhere I looked, that was what I saw. I remember the beggars in the old days, but these were children, some no older than five or six. As I looked at them in their mother's laps, it slowly dawned on me that the wars had made fathers a rare commodity in Afghanistan. The buildings that hadn't been entirely obliterated to rubble barely stood. Where are the trees? I asked. Snipers you to hide in them. A sadness came over me. Returning to Kabul was like running into an old, forgotten friend and seeing that life hadn't been good to him. Can you pull over? I asked. We walked down the street a while. Remember what the street smelled like in the old days? Farid smiled. Lamb kebab. The only people who get to eat lamb now are the Taliban. Speaking of which, beard patrol. A truck was approaching us, and that was the first time I saw the Taliban. I'd seen them on TV, in newspapers. But here I was, less than 50 feet away from them, telling myself that the sudden taste in my mouth wasn't unadulterated naked fear. Here they came, in all their glory. The red pickup idled past us. A handful of stern-faced young men sat on their haunches in the cab. Kalashnikovs slung on their shoulders. They all wore beards and black turbans. One of them twirled a whip in his hand. His roaming eyes fell on me, held my gaze. I'd never felt so naked in my entire life. Then the Talib spat tobacco-stained spittle and looked away. I found I could breathe again. What's the matter with you? Farid hissed. Don't ever stare at them. Do you understand me? Never! We found the orphanage in the northern part of Kathaseth. A thin man with tiny eyes like black peas opened the door and glanced from me to Farid. Salam alaikum. I showed him my photograph. We're searching for this boy. Sorry, I never seen him. You barely looked at the picture, my friend. 
Farid said. The man studied the picture, handed it back. Sorry, now if you'll permit me, I have work to do. He closed the door. I rapped with my knuckles. Aha, please, we do not mean him any harm. Please, go away, came the voice. Farid stepped up to the door. Friend, we are not with the Taliban. The man who is with me wants to take this boy to a safe place. I come from Peshawar, I said. I knew Sorab's father. His name was Hassan. The boy knows how to read and write, and he's good with a slingshot. There's hope for him, a way out. I'm his half-uncle. A moment passed. Then a key rattled in the lock. The man's narrow face reappeared in the crack. You were wrong about one thing. He is great with a slingshot. Tucks it in the waist of his trouser everywhere he goes. He invited us into his orphanage. There's very little shelter here. Almost no food, no clothes, no clean water. What I have in ample supply is children who've lost their childhood. But the tragedy is that these are the lucky ones. We are filled beyond capacity, and every day I turn away mothers who bring their children. You say there is hope for Sorab. I pray you don't lie, Oha. But you may well be too late. What do you mean, I asked. What I have to tell you is not pleasant. Not to mention that it may be very dangerous. There is a Talib official. He visits every month or two. He brings cash with him. The man's shifty eyes fell on me, rolled away. Usually he'll take a girl, but not always. And you allow this? Farid growled from behind me. What choice do I have? You're the director. There's nothing I can do to stop it. I haven't been paid in over six months. Everything I ever owned I sold to run this godforsaken place. You think I don't have family in Pakistan? I could have run like everyone else, but I didn't. I stayed for the sake of the children. If I deny him one, he takes ten. So I let him take one and leave the judging to Allah. I swallow my pride and take his filthy, dirty money. Then I go to the bazaar and buy food for the children. Farid dropped his eyes. How do we find him? I asked. Go to the Garzi Stadium tomorrow. You see him at half-time. He'll be the one wearing sunglasses. A bustling crowd thronged the entrance tunnel of the stadium. We found a spot to sit just left of midfield. I remembered how green the playing field had been in the 70s, when Baba used to bring me to soccer games here. Now the pitch was a mess. There were craters everywhere, most notably a pair of deep holes in the ground behind the south end goalposts. And there was no grass. When the two teams finally took to the field, it was difficult to follow the ball for the cloud of dust. They brought them out shortly after the half-time whistle. A pair of dusty red pickup trucks rode into the stadium. The crowd rose to its feet. A woman in a green burqa, sat in the cab of one truck, a blindfolded man in the other. Next to me, Farid mumbled a prayer under his breath.
A third truck met them at the end of the field. It was loaded with something in the back. I suddenly understood the purpose of those two holes behind the goalposts. Do you want to stay? Fareed asked. I'd never in my life wanted to be away from a place so badly. We have to stay. When they'd forced the couple into the chest-deep holes, a chubby white-bearded cleric recited a prayer from the Quran into a microphone. I remembered something Baba had said to me years earlier. Peace on the beards of all those self-righteous monkeys. They do nothing but thumb their rosaries and recite a book written in a tongue they do not even understand. God help us all if Afghanistan ever falls into their hands. When the prayer was done, the cleric cleared his throat. Brothers and sisters, we are here today to carry out Sarya. Every sinner must be punished in a manner befitting his sin. And what manner of punishment, brother and sister, befits the adulterer? How shall we answer those who throw stones at the windows of God's house? We shall throw stones back. Next to me, Farid was shaking his head. And they call themselves Muslims. A tall man in white stepped out of the third truck. When he faced our section of the crowd, I saw he was wearing dark round sunglasses, like the ones John Lennon wore. That must be our man, Farid said. The tall Talib walked to the pile of stones they'd unloaded from the truck. He picked up a rock, and looking absurdly like a baseball pitcher on the mound, he hurled the stone at the blindfolded man. The woman screamed. I closed my eyes. The spectators, oh, accompanied each flinging of the stone. I don't know how much longer I sat with my face in my hands. I know that I only reopened my eyes when I heard people around me ask, Mort, is he dead? When the blooded corpses had been unceremoniously tossed into the backs of the red pickups, a few men with shovels hurriedly filled the holes. A few minutes later, the teams took the field. The second half was underway. After the game, the swiftness with which the appointment was set up surprised me. All Farid had to do was tell one of the Talib that we had personal business to discuss with the Talib in the white. He nodded and shouted something to a man on the field who ran to the goalpost where the Talib in the sunglasses stood. I saw him look up. He nodded and the messenger brought word back. The meeting was set. Three o'clock. Farid parked the Land Cruiser in the driveway of a big house. I guess I wait here for you. Don't worry, I'll be back, I said. Not at all sure that I would be. Armed men frisked me and then led me upstairs to a room with twin green sofas and a big screen TV. The older of the men motioned to the sofa with the barrel of his weapon. Then they left. I knew what I'd managed to get myself into was insanity. 
I was in a holding cell waiting for a man I'd already seen murder two people that day. The door opened, and the armed man returned with a tall talib in white, still wearing his dark John Lennon glasses. He took a seat across from me, and for a long time just sat, watching me, one hand drumming the upholstery. I saw a splotch of dry blood on his left sleeve. Periodically, his free hand floated up, and his thick fingers battered at something in the air. As his sleeve retracted, I saw marks on his forearm. I'd seen those tracks on homeless people in grimy alleys in San Francisco. Finally, he said, "You can do away with that now, you know." He motioned to one of his men, and suddenly my cheeks were stinging as the guard tossed my false beard up and down in his hand. The talib smiled, one of the better ones I have seen. So, inshallah, you enjoyed the show today. Public justice is the greatest kind of show: drama, suspense, and the best of all, education, on mass. You should have been with me in Mazar-e Sharif. Sorry, I said. Door to door we went, calling for the men and the boys. We'd shoot them right there in front of their families. Let them see. Let them remember where they belong. You don't know the meaning of the word liberating until you've done that. Let the bullets fly, free of guilt and remorse, knowing you are doing God's work. It's breathtaking. I felt sick. I'm looking for a boy. <laughs> Isn't everyone? I understand he's here with you. His name is Sorab. Answer me something. Why aren't you here with your Muslim brothers, serving your country? There are those who believe that abandoning your homeland when it needs you most is treason. I could have you shot. Does that frighten you? I'm only here for the boy. Does that frighten you? Yes. He leaned back on the sofa. I thought about Soraya. It calmed me. I remembered our wedding day. The two of us dancing to an old Afghan song. Everyone clapping. The talib was saying something. Would you like to see my boy? Yes. The guard left the room. I heard him say something in Pashto. Then footfalls, and the jingle of bells with each step. The door opened, and the guard walked in carrying Estiria on his shoulder. Behind him, a boy dressed in a loose sapphire blue perhan tamban. He had his father's round face, the face of my childhood. His head was shaved, his eyes darkened with mascara, and his cheeks glowed with an unnatural red. His eyes fell on me. Then he looked down at his naked feet. One of the guards pressed a button, and Pashto music filled the room. The men began to clap. Sorab raised his arms and stood on his tiptoes. He spun gracefully. Dipped to his knees, straightened, and spun again. His little hands swivelled at the wrist. His fingers snapped, and his head swung side to side like a pendulum. 
When the music stopped, the Talib called, "Bia, bia, my boy." Sorab went to him, head down, stood between his thighs. The Talib wrapped his arms round the boy, slid his hand down the child's back. One of the guards elbowed the other and sniggered. The Talib told them to leave us alone. Sorab kept stealing furtive glances at me. I've been wondering, the Talib said, what ever happened to old Babalu anyway? The question hit me like a hammer. The childhood taunt I'd heard thrown so often at Hassan's father. My legs went cold. The Talib laughed. What did you think? That you'd put on a fake beard and I wouldn't recognize you? I never forget a face, not ever. He took off his sunglasses and locked his bloodshot blue eyes on mine. Asif, Amirja. But what are you doing here? I asked foolishly. Asif arched an eyebrow. Me? I'm in my element. What? Stoning adulterers, raping children, massacring Hazaras, all in the name of Islam? The words spilled suddenly and unexpectedly. A look of surprise crossed Asif's face. I see. This may turn out to be enjoyable after all. All I want is the boy, I said. Very well. Take him. He shoved Sorab towards me. I took the small, calloused hand. His fingers laced themselves with mine. Then Asif said. Of course, you'll have to earn him. We have some unfinished business, you and I. Remember, my entire adult life, whenever I pictured Hassan, it was with his slingshot pointed at Asif's face. Hassan saying they'd have to start calling him one-eyed Asif. I remembered how Asif had backed down, how he'd promised to get us. He had kept that promise with Hassan. Now it was my turn. Asif called the guards. In a moment, I'm going to close the door, and he and I are going to finish an old bit of business. When it's done, only one of us will walk out of this room alive. If it's him, he's earned his freedom, and you let him pass. The older guard shifted on his feet. If it's him, you let him pass! Screamed Asif. The men nodded. One reached out for Sorab. Leave him. Let him watch. Asif grinned. Lessons are good for boys. As the guards left, Asif reached into the pocket of his jacket. What he fished out didn't surprise me one bit. Brass knuckles. I don't know if I gave Asif a good fight. I don't think I did. How could I? It was the first time I'd fought anyone. My memory of the fight is amazingly vivid in stretches. Asif's bloodshot eyes, the sound of my ribs snapping like tree branches, and the end, of course. I don't know at what point I started laughing, but I did. It hurt my jaws, my ribs, and the harder I laughed, the harder Asif fought. What is so funny? He bellowed with each blow. What was so funny was that for the first time since the winter of 1975, I felt at peace. My body was broken, 
just how badly I wouldn't find out till later. But I felt healed. I was on the ground with Asif straddling my chest, his face a mask of lunacy. When, Bas, a thin voice, please, no more. I remember the orphanage director saying, "He is inseparable from that thing. He tucks it in the waist of his trouser everywhere he goes." Twin trails of black mascara mixed with tears had rolled down his cheeks. His lower lip trembled. His hand was cocked above his shoulder, holding the cup of the slingshot. The elastic band was pulled taut. There was a brass ball in the cup. Put it down, Hazara! Asif hissed. Sorab shook his head. No more, Aha! Please, don't hurt him any more. Asif let go of my throat and lunged at Sorab. The slingshot made a thwack, and Asif was screaming. He put his hand where his left eye had been. Blood oozed between his fingers. Sorab grabbed my hand, helped me to my feet. Every inch of my battered body wailed with pain. I I remembered being outside, Farid running towards us. Then I was looking up at the roof of the Land Cruiser. A tiny hand on my forehead. Faces poked through the haze. They're all wearing green hats. Do I know who I am? Do I hurt anywhere? Days later, I understood. I was in a hospital in Peshawar. The doctor listed the damage: ruptured spleen, broken ribs, punctured lung, busted eye socket, broken jaw. Farid and Sorab came to visit. Do you know who we are today? Farid asked. Thank you, I said through jaws wired shut. He waved a hand. Blushed a little. I turned to Sorab. We were never properly introduced. I'm Amir. He looked at my hand, but he didn't take it. You are the Amir father told me about. Yes, I owe you thanks too, Sorab. You saved my life. He didn't reply. What exactly happened between you and the Talib? Farid asked. Let's just say we both got what we deserved. He nodded, didn't push it. It occurred to me that somewhere along the way we'd become friends. You know, the sooner we get away from here, the better. I don't mean the hospital. I mean Peshawar. The Taliban have friends. They will start looking for you. While Farid went to make arrangements, I asked Sorab if he'd like a game of cards. I stole looks at him as he pondered his hand. He was his father in so many ways. What did your father tell you about us? That you were the best friend he ever had. I flipped a card in my fingers. I wasn't such a good friend, I'm afraid, but I think I could be a good friend to you. Would that be all right? I put my hand on his arm gingerly, but he flinched. And pushed away his stool. Standing by the window, he pressed his forehead to the glass, fists buried in his armpits. When Farid returned, it was with the news that Rahim Khan had gone, and that no one had heard of the American couple 
he suggested to look after Sorab. They weren't even listed at the American consulate. There was nothing for it. Sorab would have to come with us. I discharged myself from the hospital the next morning and slept through the entire four-hour ride to Islamabad. Farid booked us into a small hotel. Sorab sat on one of the beds and drew his knees to his chest while I went back into the street to say goodbye to Farid. When I returned to the room, Sorab was lying on the bed, his eyes closed. I couldn't tell if he was asleep. I sat on my bed and grimaced with pain. I swallowed some painkillers and wondered how long it would be before I'd be able to eat solid food. And I wondered what I'd do with the wounded little boy lying on the bed. Though a part of me already knew. When I woke, the slice of sky peeking through the hotel curtains was the purple of twilight. The sheets were soaked and my head pounded. I looked at Sorab's bed and my heart gave a sick lurch. It was empty. I called his name. Nothing. He was gone. I found the hotel manager reading a newspaper behind the Formica desktop. Ah, the boys like to run around, he sighed. But we're not from here. I'm afraid he might get lost. Then you should have kept an eye on him, mister. I stood at the counter trying not to scream. Have you any idea where he might have wandered? The mask, I said, remembering the way Sarab had strained out of the car window when we'd driven past. I found him on a patch of grass a hundred yards from the mosque. I sat beside him. We listened to the call to prayer. Watched the buildings, hundreds of lights coming on. It sparkled like a diamond in the dark. It lit up the sky. Sorab's face. Father took me to Mazar-e Sharif when I was little, he said. We went to the Blue Mosque. I remember there were so many pigeons outside, and they weren't afraid of people. They came right up to us, and I fed them with bits of naan. That was fun. You must miss your parents very much, I said, wondering if he'd seen the Taliban drag them into the street. I hoped he hadn't. Do you miss your parents? I never met my mother, but I miss my father a lot. Do you remember what he looked like? I nodded. I remember what he smelled like, too. I am starting to forget their faces. Is that bad? I felt in the pocket of my coat, found the photo of Hassan and Sorab. Here. He brought it to within an inch of his face. I thought he might cry, but he just traced his thumb over its surface. I thought of a line I'd read somewhere. There are lots of children in Afghanistan, but little childhood. Can I ask you something, Amiraha? Of course. Will God put me in hell for what I did to that man? Nay, of course not. I wanted to hold him, tell him that the world had been unkind to him, not the other way round, but when I reached for him, he flinched. I pulled back, his face strained to stay composed. 
Father used to say, it is wrong to hurt even bad people because they don't know any better and because bad people sometimes become good. Not always, Sarab. The man who hurt you tried to hurt me once when I was your age. But your father saved me. Your father was very brave and he was always rescuing me from trouble. So one day the man hurt your father instead, in a very bad way. And I... I couldn't save your father the way he saved me. Sometimes bad people stay bad, and you have to stand up to them. What you did to that man is what I should have done all those years ago. Your father would be so proud of you. I miss my father and mother, but sometimes I'm glad they're not here anymore. I don't want them to see me. I'm so dirty and full of sin. Those men, they did things. You're not dirty, Sorab. You're not full of sin. I reached gently and pulled him to me. I won't hurt you, I promise. He resisted a little, then slackened. Finally he rested his head on my chest and sobbed. As his pain soaked through my shirt, I knew that a kinship had taken root between us. I'd been looking for the right moment to ask the question that had been buzzing around in my head. I decided it was now, with the bright lights of the house of God shining on us. Would you like to come and live in America with me and my wife? He didn't answer. He just sobbed in my shirt and I let him. For a week, neither of us mentioned what I had asked. Then one day sitting in the park, Sorab pointed at the sky. I didn't know there were hawks in Islamabad, I said. Neither me, he replied. Do they have them where you live? I guess so. Can't say I've seen too many, though. I handed him a sandwich. Your father and I were brothers, I said. It just came out. I'd wanted to tell him for days. I didn't want to hide anything anymore. Half-brothers, really. We had the same father. Sorab stopped chewing. Father never said he had a brother. He didn't know. No one told either of us. I only just found out. But why did people hide it from father and you? Because he was a Hazara. I willed my eyes to stay on him. Yes. Did your father love you and my father equally? I pictured Baba in the hospital room, beaming as they removed the bandages from Hassan's lips. I think he loved us equally, but differently. Was he ashamed of my father? No. I think he was ashamed of himself. On the way back to the hotel, Sarah plagued me with questions about San Francisco. I smiled. Have you given any thought to what I asked you? It scares me. I know. But you'll learn English so fast. That's not what I mean. What if you get tired of me? What if your wife doesn't like me? I put my arm around him. I wouldn't ever get tired of you, Sorab. You're my nephew, remember? And Soraya's a very kind woman. She's going to love you. 
I don't want to go to another orphanage. I won't ever let that happen. I promise you that. When Sorab had gone to sleep, I phoned Soraya. She screamed when she heard my voice. She'd been sick with worry. I looked at my watch. I have 57 minutes left on this stupid calling card, and I have so much to tell you. Then I did what I hadn't done in 15 years of marriage. I told my wife everything. By the time I'd finished, she was weeping. But one thing she made clear was that she loved me, and she wanted me to bring Sorab home. At the American embassy, I explained that I had gone into Afghanistan to bring back my half-brother's son. I had found the boy in squalid conditions in an orphanage, and I had brought him to Pakistan. You're the boy's half-uncle? The official asked. Yes. Know anyone who can attest to that? Yes, but I don't know where he is. We were in trouble, and I knew it. Even if we assume what you've told me is true, the boy isn't legally an orphan. His parents were executed in the street, I said. You have death certificates? I was incredulous. This is Afghanistan we're talking about. Most people don't even have birth certificates. His eyes didn't so much as blink. If you want to help, send money to a reputable relief organization. Volunteer at a refugee camp. But at this point in time, we strongly discourage U.S. citizens from attempting to adopt Afghan children. I'm not giving up, I said. Then you need a good immigration lawyer. Omar Faisal had dimpled cheeks and an affable smile. I told him everything. Well, Amir, you got a tough battle ahead of you. One I can win? At the risk of sounding like an embassy official, it's not likely. Even if it's clear that the child has no surviving parents, the INS think it's good adoption practice to place him with someone in his own country. And as far as Afghanistan goes, Sharia law doesn't recognize adoption. The only option I can see, and it's a long shot, is to relinquish him to an orphanage here. Then file something called an orphan petition. I promised Sorab I wouldn't send him back to an orphanage. It may be your only shot. Back at the hotel, I sat beside Sorab. You'd promise me. You'd never put me in one of those places, Ameraha. His voice was breaking, tears pooling in his eyes. This is different. It would be here in Islamabad. And I'd visit you all the time until we can get you out and take you to America. They'll hurt me. No one's going to hurt you ever again. I wiped the tears streaking down his cheeks, wrapped my arms around his shaky little body. It'll be all right. You'll see. Please, promise, won't you, Amir? Please, promise. How could I promise? I held him against me and rocked back and forth until his breathing slowed and he fell asleep. I carried him to his bed, then lay on my own, looking out at the purple sky. The phone jolted me from sleep. Call from America. The bathroom door was open. Sorab was taking his nightly bath. A couple of clicks, and then Soraya. I told her about my disastrous day. Well, you can forget about that. 
I have spoken to a guy who has contacts in the INS. Apparently, if we get Sorab into the country, it is almost certain we can get him a humanitarian visa. I knocked on the bathroom door. Sorab, great news. We don't have to put you in an orphanage. Sorab. I pushed the door open. Suddenly I was on my knees, screaming, screaming until I thought my chest would explode. They said I was still screaming when the ambulance arrived. I see them wheel him through a set of double doors. Two men wearing surgical caps huddle over the trolley. A pair of small bloody feet poke out from under the sheet. I close my eyes and my nostrils fill with the smell of the corridor. I open them again and I know what I have to do. I grab a sheet from a pile of folded linen. I throw my makeshift prayer rug on the floor and get on my knees. I haven't prayed for over 15 years. I've long forgotten the words, but it doesn't matter. I'll utter those few words I still remember. I see now that Baba was wrong. There is a God. I see him here, in the eyes of the people in this corridor of desperation. This is where those who have lost God will find him. Not in the white mosque with its bright diamond lights and towering minarets. There is a God. There has to be. I will pray that he forgives that I have neglected him all these years. Forgive that I have betrayed, lied, and sinned only to turn to him now in my hour of need. I pray that he is as merciful, benevolent, and gracious as his book says he is. I hear a whimpering, and I realize it's mine. My lips are salty, with the tears trickling down my face. I pray that my sins haven't caught up with me, the way I had always feared they would. Someone's tapping me on the shoulder. There's a man kneeling beside me wearing a cap and a surgical mask. I don't think I can bear to hear what he's come to tell me. Twice they had to revive him. He'd cut himself so deep, they would have lost him if his heart hadn't been young and strong. He is alive. How are you? I asked. He didn't answer. He was looking through the window of the intensive care unit at the sandbox in the hospital garden. His eyes were vacant the way I found them when I pulled him out of the bathtub. I reached into the paper bag between my feet and I took out the copy of the Shanama I'd bought at a Persian bookstore. I used to read this to your father when we were children. We'd go up the hill by our house and sit under the pomegranate tree. His favorite was the story of Rustam and Sorab. That's how you got your name. I know you know that. I paused, feeling like an idiot. Anyway, he said in his letter that it was your favorite too. Shall I read to you? Sorab covered his eyes with his arm. I am so tired. Tired of everything. What can I do, Sorab? I want my old life back. I want father and mother. 
I want to play with Rahim Khan in the garden. I didn't know what to say, where to look. I wish you had left me in the water. Oh, Sorab! I leaned forward to touch his shoulder, and he flinched. I dropped my hand, remembering ruefully how, in the days before, I'd broken my promise to him. He had finally become at ease with my touch. Sorab, I can give you your old life back. I wish to God I could, but I can take you with me. You have a visa to go to America to live with me and my wife. It's true. I promise. He sighed. I wished I hadn't said those last two words. You know, I've done a lot of things I regret in my life. And maybe none more than going back on the promise I made you. But that will never happen again. I am so profoundly sorry. I ask for your forgiveness. Can you do that? Can you believe me? Will you come with me? Sorab rolled on his side and said quietly, "I am so very tired." In the end, he never accepted my offer. What I took as a yes was, in actuality, more of a quiet surrender, by one too weary to decide and far too tired to believe. And so it was that about a week later, I brought Hassan's son from Afghanistan to America. If someone were to ask me today whether the story of Hassan, Sorab, and me ends with happiness, I wouldn't know what to say. We arrived home about seven months ago. Saraya picked us up at the airport. I'd never been away from her for so long, and when I smelled apples in her hair, I realized how much I had missed her. After she knelt to eye level with Sorab, she took his hand and smiled at him. Sorab shifted on his feet and looked away. Saraya had turned the study upstairs into a bedroom. She led Sorab in, and he sat on the edge of the bed. The sheet showed brightly colored kites flying in indigo blue sky. At the foot of the bed was a wicker basket stuffed with toys and books. Sorab looked at it impassively. Soraya asked if he liked his room. He lowered his head, said nothing. Then he simply laid his head on the pillow, and less than five minutes later, he was asleep. Sarab didn't so much live with us as occupy space, and precious little of it. Sometimes at the market or in the park, I noticed how other people hardly seemed to see him. He moved as if not to stir the air around him. Mostly, he slept. Sarab's silence was hard on Soraya. Over the long distance line to Pakistan, she told me about the things she was planning for him: swimming classes, soccer. Now she'd walk past his room and catch a glimpse of books sitting unopened, jigsaw puzzles unmade. While Sorab was silent, the world was not. One Tuesday morning, the twin towers came crumbling down, and overnight the world changed. Soon after the attacks, America bombed Afghanistan. The Northern Alliance moved in, and the Taliban scurried like rats into the caves. Suddenly, people were standing in grocery stores talking about the cities of my childhood, Kandahar, Herat, 
Mazari Sharif. Surab sleepwalked through it all. Then four days ago, on a cool rainy weekend in March, a small wondrous thing happened. I took Soraya and Surab to a gathering of Afghans at the park. The previous week had been the Afghan New Year. We arrived around noon. Someone was already frying balani. Steam rose from teacups. A scratchy old Ahmed Zahir song was blaring from a cassette player. It had been raining, and we rushed across the soggy grass into the shelter of a makeshift tent. Sarab only stayed under the canopy for a moment and then stepped back into the rain, hands stuffed in the pockets of his raincoat, his hair plastered against his scalp. No one seemed to notice. With time, the queries about our adopted and decidedly eccentric little boy had mercifully eased. People stopped asking why he never spoke, why he didn't play with the other kids. I shook hands with Kabir, a silver-haired man who introduced me to a dozen others, who'd all known Baba. In one way or another, he touched all their lives. They said I was lucky to have had such a great man for a father. Someone lightened a barbecue, and the smell of lamb kebab flooded my senses. Saraya pulled on my sleeve. Amir, look! She was pointing in the air. A half dozen kites were flying high against the gray sky. A man was selling them from a stand nearby. I walked over and pointed to a yellow one. He handed me the kite and a wooden spool of glass tar. I tested the string the way Hassan and I used to, by holding it between my thumb and forefinger. The seller smiled. I took the kite to where Sarab was standing. Do you like it? I asked holding it up by the end of the crossbar. His eyes shifted from the sky to me, to the kite, then back. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Saraya watching us from the tent, hands tensely dug in her armpits. I wet my index finger and held it up. I remember the way your father checked the wind was to kick up the dust with his sandal, see which way the wind blew it. He knew a lot of little tricks like that. Sorab wiped the raindrop from his earlobe, shifted on his feet. Did I ever tell you your father was the best kite runner in all of Kabul? How jealous he made the neighborhood kids? He'd run kites and never look up at the sky, and people used to say he was chasing the kite shadow. But they didn't know him, like I did. Your father wasn't chasing shadows, he just knew. Another half dozen kites had taken flight. People had started to gather in clumps, teacups in hands, eyes glued to the sky. Do you want to help me fly it? Sarab's gaze bounced from the kite to me. Okay, I shrugged. Looks like I'll have to fly it solo. I balanced the spool in my left hand and fed about three feet of tar. The yellow kite dangled at the end of it, just above the wet grass. Last chance, all right? Here I go. I took off, running, the hand clutching the kite end of the string held high above my head. I let the spool roll in my left hand. The kite was lifting behind me now, lifting and wheeling. I ran harder, then stopped and turned. High above, my kite was tilting side to side, making that old flapping sound I always associated with winter mornings in Kabul. 
I hadn't flown a kite for a quarter of a century, but suddenly I was twelve again, and all the old instincts came rushing back. I felt a presence next to me, and looked down. It was Sorab, hands dug deep in the pockets of his raincoat. He'd followed me. Do you want to try? I asked. He said nothing. But when I held the string out for him, his hand lifted from his pocket, hesitated, took the string. We stood quietly, side by side, necks bent up. Then I saw we had company. A green kite was closing in. I traced the string to a kid standing about thirty yards from us. He saw me looking and waved. I smiled. Okay, let's teach him a lesson. The glassy, vacant look in Sarab's eyes was gone. His gaze flitted between our kite and the green one. His eyes suddenly alive. I wondered when I'd forgotten that, despite everything, he was still just a child. The green kite was making its move. Let's wait, I said. Let him get a little closer. The kite dipped twice and crept towards us, suddenly rising above us, unaware of the trap I'd set. Watch, Sorab. I'm going to show you one of your father's favorite tricks. Next to me, Sorab gripped the spool, and just for a moment, I saw the calloused hands of a hairlip boy. The park shimmered with snow, so fresh, so dazzling white, it burnt my eyes. I smelled dried mulberries, sour oranges. The green kite hovered directly above us, held position, then shot down. Here he comes. I did it perfectly. After all these years, the old lift and dive trap. I loosened my grip and tugged on the string, dipping and dodging the green kite. A series of quick sidearm jerks, and our kite shot up counterclockwise in a half circle. Suddenly, I was on top. The green kite was scrambling now, panic-stricken, but it was too late. I pulled hard, and our kite plummeted. I could almost feel our string sawing his, almost heard the snap. Then, just like that, the green kite was spinning and wheeling out of control. Behind us, people cheered. The last time I'd felt a rush like this was that day in the winter of 1975, when I spotted Baba on our rooftop, clapping, beaming. I looked down at Sorab. One corner of his mouth had curled up, a smile, lopsided, but there. Behind us, a melee of screaming kite runners was chasing the loose kite. I blinked, and the smile had gone, but it had been there. I'd seen it. Do you want me to run that kite for you? He swallowed. I thought I saw him nod. For you, a thousand times over, I heard myself say. Then I turned and ran. It was only a smile, nothing more. It didn't make everything all right. It was just a leaf in the woods, shaking in the wake of a startled bird's flight. But I'll take it, with open arms, because when spring comes, it melts the snow one flake at a time, and maybe I just witnessed the first flake melting. I ran, a grown man, running with a swarm of screaming children, but I didn't care.
I ran with the wind blowing in my face and a smile as wide as the valley of Panjshir on my lips. I ran. Thank you.